Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, we are experiencing one of the worst flu seasons in a long time, for people that is, and the vaccine has failed many of us, leading to a week or two of just plain old misery. Now, also, there have been many stories about this year's dog flu season. Yes, canine influenza. So we wondered if it's an especially bad one for pets as well, or are we just on edge about the human variety? To explore this and learn about canine influenza, I'm happy to welcome veterinarian Robert Reed, medical director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Hi, Dr. Reed. Hey, Peter. Nice to talk to you. Okay, so canine influenza, what is it? Well, uh, quite a few little facts to go over about it if you want to hear them. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people asking about canine influenza these days. It is getting a lot of press, um, largely because it's been such a bad year for people. But interestingly, the canine flu is not known to be a seasonal virus. It tends to pop up year-round. Uh, we tend to see hotbeds of it where there'll be an outbreak, and a lot of cases are reported periodically around the country, and it, tends, it can be anywhere. Uh, we've seen them this year in the San Francisco area. A few years ago, a bad outbreak in Chicago, another in Seattle, another in Atlanta. You tend to hear those reported in both the local and sometimes the national media when an outbreak like that occurs. But the basic facts... Um, there are two types of influenza virus that affect dogs. They're called H3N2 and H3N8. They're transmitted just like with people through respiratory secretions, from sneezing, coughing, barking, or even with contact uh, with surfaces. Uh, the virus can live on surfaces for up to 24 hours. I'm sorry, for up to 48 hours. It can live on hands for up to 12 hours and it can live on clothing for up to 24 hours. So hmm. probably one of the more common ways it's transmitted is through contact with people or objects that have been contaminated by a dog who's shedding the virus. Any dog that goes into an environment where their breathing, is, breathing space is shared with other dogs from outside their household, or they have close contact with other dogs through play activity or shared toys or drinking vessels, can potentially be exposed to canine flu. Uh, because it's such a contagious virus, virtually every dog that's exposed to it will become infected, but probably only about 80% of them will show symptoms. 20% may have the virus without any symptoms. Of those, the vast majority will recover. They'll have a, a, an illness like people experience. The mortality rate is really low. We don't know the exact number, but it's probably less than 5% and it's most likely to, the severe symptoms are most likely to affect animals who have pre-existing health problems like heart disease, um, tracheal collapse, or immune conditions, the uh, suppression of the immune system from therapy for other diseases. Uh, most dogs will recover with just supportive care, which is basically fluids, good nutrition, antibiotics, maybe anti-inflammatories, occasionally cough suppressants, mm. kind of like we treat flu in people. Yeah. And those that have more severe infections may have to go through hospitalization. Usually the recovery is within three weeks. They may cough for up to three weeks, but most of them will start to show improvement within a few days. The symptoms usually appear about two to three days after exposure, and by the time they're recognized, they've already passed through the most contagious period which really frustrates our ability to control outbreaks when they occur. To just be clear about one thing, a person such as myself, I could harbor this virus on my clothing and transmit it to another dog? 
That is possible, yeah. So if you're a person who handles a lot of dogs, and particularly if you're in an area that's been experiencing a recent outbreak of flu, you should always take care to wash your hands thoroughly or change your clothing before you handle your own dog if you've been in contact with other dogs. Do dogs get fever when they have an illness like this? Yeah, it certainly can get fever. When a dog gets fever, they usually see it as a drop in appetite and listless behavior. And so that makes me ask, can you get very mild uh, cases where the dog just seems a little out of sorts for a day or two and then just uh, recovers and you never really figured out what's going on? I think a lot of dogs that, that get flu have it, they get over it, nobody realizes that they've had it. And the symptoms are very similar to some other more common illnesses that affect dogs, and they're really hard to differentiate. You have to do pretty sophisticated testing early on in the disease to to be able to definitively identify the canine flu virus. And a lot of times it just isn't done. So it's possible that the infections are occurring more frequently than we realize. We just aren't testing, and the dogs are recovering without any long-term problems. Talk a little about cats, if you would. They can get the same virus? Cats have been known to pick up the H3N2 virus, one of the strains. But oddly, cats don't seem to be as severely affected as dogs. And the situations where cats pick them up have been fairly unique, with really intense exposures through shelter situations. Is this year indeed worse than usual, or, or is everyone just freaked out about the human flu? I think it's more a case of heightened awareness. It it sort of depends on where you are, because if you're in an area where they've seen or documented a number of cases, you're certainly going to get more media exposure to it. But I think this year is not necessarily worse than the last three in terms of the number of canine flu cases that have been reported. It's possible that we're seeing more testing done now because there's a heightened awareness of the disease. But um, again, I don't think it's a real seasonal issue with dogs. And this year, even though we're seeing a lot more reports about it, I'm not convinced that we're seeing uh, a whole lot more cases. We've been seeing them for a few years, and it's going to be an ongoing concern for us. It's not likely to go away. Yeah. Okay. Would you address... uh uh, the testing, again, if uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on that and uh, tell us about the vaccine. The testing is uh, performed on dogs who, have, who are suspects, and most likely you're going to do that if you're in an area that's been affected by a number of cases. Uh, it involves collection of secretions from the back of the throat uh, and then having it submitted for a PCR, which is a DNA analysis to identify the virus and differentiate the infection from other common types of ailments that cause the same symptoms. And there is a vaccine, is that right? There is a vaccine. There are vaccines against both strains. There is a vaccine that includes both of them in one vaccine. You can either do them separately or you can do them together. Uh, The first time it's administered, it's usually recommended that you boost it about three to four weeks later, and then it's an annual vaccine after that. So if you have a shelter or a busy clinical practice and you get an infected dog or two, it's a big problem for you to deal with, isn't it, in terms of breakout? Oh, uh, yeah, that breakout. absolutely is. But, you know, if, if we knew that a dog, that uh, a shelter or facility was affected by flu, then fortunately disinfection of the surfaces is, uh, is very effective and uh, the virus only stays viable for about 48 hours unless it's picked up by another host. So, you know, it could be easily eliminated if you knew it was there 
you would just have to take measures to make sure that no dogs get reinfected. I generally recommend that people approach the vaccination of, of canine flu the way that they look at their own vaccination. You know, uh, some people choose not to get a flu vaccine for themselves for their own reasons, and some people may choose not to get a flu vaccine for their dogs. But there's no evidence that the vaccination does any harm to dogs. So if you're going to be in an area or traveling in an area, you live in an area where there's a concern about flu virus, I think it's worth getting the vaccine. There's no reason not to get it unless you, you have uh, a particular concern against vaccination in general. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. You bet. Your Animals Today Minute for today is about plastic straws and the oceans. Recently, environmental and animal welfare groups have begun asking people to stop using plastic straws because many of them end up in the oceans where they harm aquatic animals. Each year, an estimated 4.8 to 12.7 million metric tons of plastic waste enters the oceans. But why the recent interest in drinking straws, which are a relatively small part of the plastic waste? Well, a video showing the removal of a straw embedded in the nasal passage of a rescued sea turtle definitely raised awareness about the direct effects of plastic waste on aquatic animals. This has been viewed more than 17 million times on YouTube, and a follow-up video showing the removal of a plastic fork from a leatherback turtle's nose has almost 6 million views. Overall, the main types of marine debris are plastics, lost and discarded fishing gear like lines and ghost nets, food packaging, metal objects, medical waste, and cigarette filters. 20% of the total is from fishing gear lost at sea or by illegal dumping. Along coastal regions, small pieces of discarded trash wash into storm drains, which lead to the oceans. Beachgoers and picnickers who litter contribute to ocean pollution and poorly managed municipal dumps and factories are also culprits. Trash that finds its way into rivers and streams likewise can end up as ocean debris. Finally, there is the impact of weather events like hurricanes, which can blow huge amounts of garbage into waterways and oceans. Marine animals are harmed by ingestion and by entanglement. Discarded nets and traps can continue to kill marine life by suffocation and starvation long after they are lost. Waterfowl, fish, and sea mammals ingest plastics of all varieties, filling their stomachs with trash and robbing them of vital calories. Now, back to the burden of straws. A statistic you may read is that each day in the U.S., people discard 500 million straws or 180 billion per year. Now, even though this figure has been questioned as coming from a single possibly biased source, one thing is certain. At beach cleanups, plastic straws are among the top 10 items removed. So it sure seems reasonable to be concerned about plastic straws as oceanic waste. So whether to ditch plastic straws will be a decision for each of us to make. That is, unless you are in the coastal cities of Manhattan Beach or San Luis Obispo, California, where disposable plastics, such as food containers and straws, are prohibited. And recently, a bill introduced in California would assess hefty fines and even jail time to restaurant wait staff who supply plastic straws to customers without specifically being asked. Let's see where this goes, but here in California, anything's possible. 
Some restaurants have already stopped offering straws anyway, or are using compostable ones. And of course, there are voluntary steps each of us can take to reduce our plastic footprint, like reducing the use of other single-use plastics like bags, cups, and water bottles. There are so many durable, practical, and stylish alternatives now available, and there are even stainless steel straws. So, help save the oceans and their creatures, and make single-use convenience plastics a thing of the past. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. There's a new survey just released about the Swimming with Dolphins program in, of all places, Arizona. Uh, this follows the opening of a new dolphinarium in Scottsdale, and here to tell us about what's going on is Dr. Naomi Rose, marine mammal scientist at Animal Welfare Institute. Hey, Dr. Rose. Hi, how are you? Okay, so there's this uh, new survey out. Who commissioned this survey, and what's the... We what's did. The, uh-huh. um, there are two local groups in Arizona and the Animal Welfare Institute. Uh, we work together to um, commission this, this poll. Okay, and what, uh, why'd you do it? Well, whenever um, we try to determine, you know, what's going on with a new facility like this, you know, you want to get a sense of where the public stands on it. And we could say, you know, oh, the public opposes it, and Dolphinaris would then turn around and say, oh, no, no, they support it. So we work with independent um, polling companies to conduct these sorts of polls whenever we're interested in trying to get to the truth of the matter. Okay, so what's Dolphinaris? Dolphin Aris is the facility in Arizona. It's the company that owns it. It's actually Mexican-based. Um, it's uh, based in Mexico, and it's expanding into the United States. And the one in Arizona has just opened? Oh, yes, just opened. October 15th, I believe, was the grand opening. Uh-huh. Are there whales in this one? No, no. This is just a basically a swim with the dolphin program. Mm-hmm. So these are bottlenose dolphins, and um, I believe there's eight of them, if I have that correct. What was asked in the survey, and what did you find? So it was a very straightforward, brief survey. It basically asked, you know, are you aware, or well, you know, as you may know, I can actually read these to you if you want me to, but it just said, you know, if you, you know, as you may know, there's a new facility in Scottsdale, and you can swim with the dolphins there. Um, and in general, do you strongly support, somewhat support, somewhat oppose, or strongly oppose mm-hmm. having dolphins held in tanks for this purpose? And what we determined was that 49% of the public is opposed to holding dolphins for swim with purposes, Mm -hmm. which was a big shift. I've been doing this for 23 years. This is a big shift from what it used to be. Swimming with dolphins is like a lot of people's, you know, sort of bucket list activity. And, you know, everybody just assumes that the dolphins want to be with people as much as people want to be with the dolphins. That's a charming thought, but it's it's kind of, um, if you give it any thought, <laughs> if you give it some really logical thought, unlikely. <laughs> so, um, in fact, we've been working very hard to educate the public about this, and I think we're finally seeing some shift in the public opinion about this. So 49% were opposed to keeping dolphins for swim with purposes, and only 32% supported it. And the vet the rest, 19%, are undecided. So um, I think that we are finally getting a shift here. Believe me, 20 years ago when I started all of this, it was the other way around. Mm. 
Well, well, congratulations. Another element that I read in the release has to do with who is the decision maker in whether to visit. Yeah. Tell us about that. From the perspective of Dolphinaris, from the perspective of the facility, I think they ought to care about this. 55% of women 25 to 45, that's, you know, mom. Yeah. <laughs> She's the one, you know, the, the wife, the mother of a family, you know, often makes these sorts of decisions. Where are we going to go on vacation? What are we going to do? Um, and, and in that sense, 55% of that age group and that gender are opposed to these activities, mm-hmm. this activity. 55% are, are opposed to it, and 30% are strongly opposed to it. A third of women of that age group, mom, are strongly opposed to swimming with dolphins, hmm. you know, in, in these concrete tanks in the middle of the desert. Yeah. So it's um, definitely something I would think dolphinaria should care about. Give us a little broader view. Why does the Animal Welfare Institute, or you personally, op- oppose these sorts of things? So I'm a marine mammal biologist. I'm actually a dolphin biologist. Uh, um, my specialty um, is in orcas. I'm, I used to spend a lot of time out in the, in the wild with those guys. Mm-hmm. But I'm also well-versed in, in all things cetacean. And I have to tell you, of all the species out there, they are at the top of the list of wildlife that simply cannot adjust, simply cannot thrive in concrete tanks. And so we oppose this activity. We oppose the public display, the captive display of all whales and dolphins everywhere. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to building a brand new facility in the middle of the desert, you know, I just can't begin to tell you how inappropriate that is. You know, dolphin heiress will tell you, oh, you know, we're bringing the dolphins to the desert because otherwise people who live here can't know anything about them. Well, one, of course, people can learn all sorts of ways these days, Yep. you know. There's technology that brings dolphins right into your living room, for heaven's sakes. You know, I don't think you need to see the living thing anymore to appreciate it and learn about it. But the idea of bringing the dolphins to the desert because people have some sort of right to see them there is a little old-fashioned, I think. And quite frankly, I again, I'm not really sure, you know, how anybody could think putting a multi-million gallon hole in the ground full of water that has to be salinated (laughs) because that's what dolphins need um, in a region that has water shortage problems um, is a good idea. This notion that uh, you need to be in contact or actual physical physically near the animal to learn anything and that what you learn actually will help animals elsewhere is pervasive in the whole field. I think it's... um, waning. Mm, you know, it used to be the conventional wisdom, I agree with you, but I think we're shifting in that regard. And it's simply because historically, you know, everybody thought, well, you know, zoos and aquariums do good work and sure they, you know, w- we need to see them and 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 be near them to to appreciate them and learn to love them. If that is what is required for people to help wildlife in nature, then there's an awful lot of species that are not held in captivity that are doomed. Yeah. And I don't think they are doomed. I think people, for example, love whales, don't they? They love humpback whales and the songs they sing. They love the whole romance of sperm whales and Moby Dick and all of that. Neither of those species has ever been held in captivity. Yes. (laughs) And most people have never seen them in the flesh unless they've gone whale watching. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people love them and appreciate them and want to help them clearly doesn't require the living animal to 
to invoke. So I, I would disagree with that on its face. It's clearly not true. Any final words for our people who want to end this practice? Well, I, you know, I really have always pointed out to people that they should try to see this from the dolphin's point of view. So what we have here are eight dolphins in a 10-foot deep swimming pool, just like the kind you have at a hotel, filled with fresh water that's been artificially salinated, swimming around in the hot desert sun, and they are, in fact, swimming around in the hot desert sun because there's very little shade at this facility. And they're there to amuse you. They're there to entertain you. And that's their life, mm-hmm. 24-7. You get to go home at night. They'll never see home again. And I really hope that people can try to appreciate, you know, that kind of future for these poor animals yeah. that are now stuck in this box. Well, thank you for that graphic concluding thought, Dr. Naomi Rose, Animal Welfare Institute. We appreciate you coming on Animals Today. Thank you. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Well, February is Adopt a Rescued Rabbit Month, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Anne Martin, who's Executive Director of House Rabbit Society. Hi, Anne. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Lori. Anne, what is Adopt a Rescued Rabbit Month all about? Yeah, our goal is to introduce everyone to the fact that there are rescued rabbits across the country and, in fact, internationally that that are all looking for great homes. You may be thinking in February, you may be thinking of Valentine's Day and romance, um, but if you want to fall in love, you could do that as close as your local shelter, Rabbit Rescue, um, fall in love with a a local rabbit. Um, Rabbits also love to have a companion. So February is a great time to adopt a rescued rabbit for your rabbit. Um, And at rescues or shelters, there are people, volunteers, and staff that can help you find a really good match for your bunny as well. So we're really just trying to raise awareness about all the great rabbits that are out there looking for homes. And I really want to get into the serious issues related to rabbits in our society, like their use in research and cosmetic testing. But first, Anne, let's briefly talk about them as pets. What are the main qualities? that make rabbits good companion animals and what types of households or families tend to do best with pet rabbits? Rabbits are fabulous um, pets. They're they're great companions um, to live indoors with people. Rabbits are really susceptible to predators and heat and cold if they're living outside. Um, So rabbits live a much happier, healthier life if they live inside as a part of the family. Just like with our cats and dogs, they live healthier, happier lives as they're when they're part of the family and uh, can run around the living room and lick our fingers and, um, you know, beg for treats and all those kinds of things. Rabbits do all those things as well. Living with a rabbit is really similar to living with a cat. They use a litter box. They don't need to go out for walks and they don't bark. Um, So they're great companions for people who live in apartments or urban environments. Um, 
and you can always take them outside to play as long as there's someone outside to supervise them. But they are very vulnerable outside, and so House Rabbit Society really believes that they need to be inside. Any any family or individual could be a great rabbit person. You just need to do your homework first before bringing a rabbit home. We have lots of great information at rabbit.org on what you need to do to take good care of a rabbit, um, what to feed them, what kind of housing they need. We just recommend a puppy exercise pen in your home for when you're asleep or when you're away from the house. And then when you're home, you can just let them run around like a cat. And let's move on to rabbit overpopulation and the advice to adopt and not to purchase. Are rabbits purposefully bred for the pet market? The overpopulation problem is a really big problem with rabbits. Rabbits are purposefully bred for the pet market, um, but rabbits also reproduce very quickly. They have earned their reputation in this. They can have babies every 30 days. So a lot of people may go to a pet store, they may get rabbits from a friend, and they're told they have two girls. And the next thing they know, there's a litter of babies. And it may seem kind of exciting. Um, And then 30 days later, there's another litter of babies. So Mm. in about two months' time, they can go from having two rabbits to having 20 rabbits or more. And all of a sudden, that's really overwhelming. And that just keeps happening. So the overpopulation issue with rabbits is is a really big one, um, both where people are intentionally breeding rabbits for sale, um, but also people unintentionally breeding rabbits and having that get out of control really quickly. Um, So sadly, we see rabbits uh, as they, they are the third most surrendered pet after cats and dogs to our nation's animal shelters. We see rabbits in our shelters. Um, Many of the rabbits are stray. Either they've escaped from someone's backyard um, or somebody may have let them go thinking that they could survive. Um, But but rabbits are domesticated and they they can't survive in the wild. Um, They're dependent on people uh, in order to feed them and take care of them. And they're very vulnerable, again, to predators and heat and cold. So, you know, a pet rabbit out in the forest isn't going to last very long, sadly. Um, so, so we do see a fair number of stray rabbits that come into our animal shelters. Um, and we also see rabbits where people haven't done their homework first and haven't really done, you know, thought about what it takes to take care of a rabbit. And um, they don't get them spayed and neutered, which is very important with rabbits. And rabbits will have hormonal behaviors similar to cats and dogs. If you don't get them spayed and neutered, they have these unwanted hormonal behaviors. And with rabbits, it could be spraying urine or nipping um, or not using the litter box. And and once you fix them, all of those issues go away. Um, But for people who are enticed at a pet store to buy a very young baby rabbit, they don't necessarily know the importance of spay and neuter. Um, Most of the pet stores aren't going to tell them that. Spay and neuter piece is also very important for the females. They have an 80% chance of uterine cancer if they're not spayed. And so that, that chance of cancer is just eliminated if they get spayed. Most people just kind of don't know these things, and if they haven't done their homework and the rabbit is displaying these unwanted behaviors, they may end up at an animal shelter. Um, the other common reason that we see for rabbits ending up at an animal shelter is that um, they were seen as a child's pet. Rabbits live 8 to 12 years, um, which is almost as long as a big dog. and a lot of times we're not really thinking of that when we're thinking of our kids. And and if a rabbit is going to be seen as a child's responsibility, 
children's interests change a lot in an 8 to 12 year period of time. And we see this even with our adopters. You know, they may not be thinking of their child going to college when they're only 12 years old. So we're, we're always trying to do education to remind people the lifespan of rabbits and that everybody in the family, um, and especially the parents, need to take responsibility for the rabbits. And if the parents want the rabbit, uh, everything's going to be great. They're going to have a great family experience. Um, but in cases where um, people haven't had that information up front and they were expecting a child to take care of the rabbit, um, that's often not sustainable over an 8- to 12-year period, um, and the rabbit might, might find themselves unwanted or in, at an animal shelter. And please talk about the use of the fur of rabbits as clothing. Is this done in the U.S., and how can consumers avoid purchasing products made of rabbit? Yeah, sadly, fur issue is still here and present in the United States. I'd like to say that it's not, um, but there are still people purchasing fur, both from rabbits and from other animals, for clothing. You can also find rabbit fur in household items. Occasionally, we'll see them as, like, key rings or cat toys um, can be made out of rabbit fur. There, There is a labeling requirement in the United States if item garments are made with fur. So you can check the labeling. There have been a few exposés in the last few years about companies claiming that they're using faux fur when it's actually real fur. Um, so you can actually look down at the very base of the garment. And if it looks like a fabric weave at the base of the fur, then you know that it's a synthetic. Um, but if it looks like leather or skin at the base of that fur, odds are that's actually real fur on that garment. Um, and, and we would counsel people not to buy it because the cruelties that are inherent to the fur farming are just absolutely atrocious um, and just absolutely heartbreaking. And, and there's some video footage online for people that want to go in and investigate that further. And update us on the use and abuse of rabbits in testing of cosmetics and other household products. I mean, my general understanding is that the situation is better in the EU, but we're making some headway in the U.S. Is that correct? It's true. We're making some headway, and I believe HSUS is working on um, some proposed legislation in this area right now. Um, but unfortunately, there's still a lot of testing, both of cosmetics and other household products. And the the thing we can do as consumers is check our labels really carefully. If you see a, a leaping bunny um, or you see that it's written on the container, no animal testing, that's the best thing that you can do to check that you're not contributing to this issue. Um, a lot of everyday household products, cleaners, toothpaste, a lot of these companies don't have that labeling on there. Um, and, and it would be really easy to think, oh, I'm sure they just forgot to put it on. But if you do a little bit of homework, um, nine times out of 10, those, those companies are still participating in animal testing. The sad thing is, is that most of the time, it's not actually legally required of them, um, but this is actually a strategy that they're trying to minimize their liability because they can claim, well, we've done additional testing, therefore we believe the products are more safe. Um, whether or not that's actually even true, um, many of these the ingredient products have previously already been tested and many animals have been subjected to this testing years and years and years ago. Um, and so there's not a need for further testing on these same types of products. Products. Um, but unfortunately, in our um, kind of liability-driven economy, um, we see it happening all the time. And are people still purchasing and eating rabbit meat in the United States? 
Yeah, this is a really sad state of affairs. Unfortunately, people are still eating rabbit in the United States. Um, and the rabbits that people are eating are exactly the same rabbits that we share our homes with as companion animals or as pets. Um, there, There's no genetic difference. It's not wild rabbits versus pet rabbits. It's exactly the same rabbits. Um, so for those of us that share our lives with rabbits and, you know, have them hopping around our living rooms and sleeping at the foot of our beds, um, it, this is a really personal issue and a really heartbreaking one. Um, the rabbits that are raised for meat um, are done in factory, they're raised in factory farming conditions in battery cages, and they're sourced to grocery stores across the country. So we were successful a couple years ago in asking Whole Foods to stop selling rabbit meat, but there are others um, that are still selling rabbit meat in their meat case. Um, and we, we would love to see this end. Uh, and if you are shopping in a grocery store and you see rabbit in the meat case, if you could talk to them and just let them know that you, you would like to see it stop. And um, you could even ask if there's been a lot of demand for that product. Um, what we heard from Whole Foods was that there wasn't as much demand as they had expected. Um, and there was a lot of pushback from their, their consumer base. And so I think if you're at a store where they're telling you they're not selling a lot of it, um, if you and your friends want to really petition the store, there's a possibility that they could stop carrying it. A lot of people that live with companion rabbits, this issue is so personal to them. It makes them reconsider their own diet and what they eat. Um, and I know a lot of people that have gone vegetarian or vegan simply because they opened their home to a rabbit. And that started them thinking because they love this little rabbit so completely, just like we love our cats and our dogs. How could anyone possibly want to eat them um, and just so carelessly take their life for a meal? So for a lot of people, um, just having a pet rabbit at home has opened their eyes to both the issues of rabbits being raised for meat, um, but also animal testing and these other issues that um, that, that are, are serious animal rights issues. But, but it becomes much more personal when it's the animals that we share our homes with. That's so true. Don't go away. More with Ann Martin right after the break. Executive Director of House Rabbit Society, Anne Martin. And soon it will be Easter, and I'm sure that will present with many challenges for rabbit advocates. Please explain. So at Easter time, um, rabbits are everywhere in our culture. Uh, it's a sign of spring and rebirth and, uh, you know, animals, birds and the bees and animals having babies and all of this. Rabbits are this powerful symbol of fertility and um, reawakening and spring. Um, at the same time, some people actually take that very literally and will try to go out and buy baby rabbits for their kids as presents um, or put them in their Easter baskets. And so every Easter, we always want to remind um, the public that rabbits are fabulous companions, but you really want to do your homework first before you bring a rabbit home. Again, they're an 8- to 12-year commitment, and so you don't want to just go out and, you know, pop a baby rabbit in your Easter basket on a whim um, because they have really specific care needs. Um, 
and and it can be really a sad tragedy um, for your children and for your family um, if your baby rabbit passes away because they've been fed the wrong thing or um, you know they had poor care before coming to you. Um, so really the best thing you can do is do your homework. And then when you're ready to adopt, um, go to a rescuer or a shelter where you're going to be saving a life when you take a rabbit home. You know, unfortunately, because there are so many rabbits that end up unwanted, um, there are literally rescues across the country and internationally. We have 30 chapters um, in the United States and a couple abroad um, that are just House Rabbit Society chapters. But if you go on petfinder.com, you can look and see thousands of rabbits um, in your own community and in communities near you, rescues and shelters, um, all different kinds of rabbits, big rabbits, little rabbits, fluffy rabbits. Um, the rabbits that often have the hardest time finding homes are white bunnies with pink eyes, um, sadly, because um, people are scared of their pink eyes. And um, I personally think the pink eyes are beautiful. And um, I've known so many of these wonderful rabbits um, that are white with pink eyes that have had absolutely the best personalities. So I really encourage people to take a second look at those rabbits. Um, and senior rabbits or rabbits that have some special need often have a harder time finding a home. So I would also encourage people to take a second look at those rabbits. Um, going back to the issue of, of animal testing, I've personally had a rabbit that I lived with, um, Chester, who, who recently passed away, but um, who was rescued from a research lab. Um, and he was a big white rabbit with pink eyes and um, was a fabulous bunny. So I would definitely encourage people to be open-minded in, in terms of falling in love with a rabbit and what they look like. Well, Anne, I wanted to give you a chance to give us an overview of the main welfare issues concerning rabbits, and I know we've only just scratched the surface. There's a lot more information on the House Rabbit Society's website. That's rabbit.org. More information than probably any other single source in the world, so I encourage listeners to go to rabbit.org to learn more about rabbits and or if you or someone you know is considering rescuing a rabbit. Anne Martin from House Rabbit Society. Thank you so much for all your good work, Anne. Thank you, Laurie. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Lori. Hey, Peter. You know, I've had a couple of instances in the backyard in the evening or in the morning with one of the dogs, Skye. And Skye, I've learned, has a habit of drinking out of my cup. And I've learned that Skye likes the taste of wine, so I need to not take my... You know, in the evening, I'd like to have a, a little glass of wine outside, watch the sunset. It's very relaxing. But I can't put my cup down because before I know it, she's slurping out of it. So I've had to be really guarding that, which is somewhat annoying. And then also in the morning, same thing. I've got my coffee out there and she will drink the whole thing of coffee if I let her. And you know, the question that comes up now what? There's dogs live. What should I do with this drink? Right, Lori? Yeah. What do you do with it? I'm still trying to figure that out. But what do people do? <laughs> right. So then we thought it would be interesting to pose this question on Facebook. So we wrote the following. Would you continue to drink your beverage, whatever it might be, beer, coffee, water, orange juice, etc., after your dog drinks or licks from it. For example, your beverage is on the table and your dog takes a couple licks out of it. Do you continue drinking from it or do you throw it out and prepare your drink over again? And a similar question for your plate or bowl of food. If your dog eats some of the food, do you continue to eat it? Do you throw it away and start over or do you just throw out the portion that you think he touched with his mouth or tongue? 
Finally, do you share a spoon or fork with your dog? Please tell us your preferences and share your stories. Mm, good questions. Okay. Yeah, so ready for some of the... It's good that you ask this because I'm always wondering, am I like in the mainstream or am I like really doing my own thing? And like, am I super germaphobic or am I just like an average pet, you know, guardian? So I'm glad you put that out there. What, what did people say? I think it was a split response, actually. Here are some of what people said. Yep, my dogs are my kids, but if I get a piece of hair, it's all theirs. Yeah. Okay. Someone else says, yep, I use my spoon to give them a taste of something and then eat from the same spoon. By the way, they don't mind if I use the spoon either. They don't mind. Okay, so that's a very specific thing. You're, you're sharing a utensil. and look. So that's very brave, I think. This person writes, yes, my animals eat and drink from my plate and glass at times, and it doesn't bother me. Someone else, not a problem for me. Someone else, sure, why not? We kiss on the lips every day. What's the difference? Here's a funny one. Considering that he was licking from his, and I'll just change the word to testicles, 30 seconds ago, I would say no. And someone replied to that comment by saying he shouldn't have any, quote, testicles, but I know what you're saying. Mm. Okay, I want to tell you what I do with the food on the plate scenario because this, I've changed over the years. I used to just start all over if the dog was anywhere near my plate, but now I sort of uh, wall it off and I'll just sort of eat around where I'm guessing they might have touched. But what about the argument that our dogs kiss you in the mouth and you let them? I know it's not logical. It's, I'm just trying to enjoy my dinner without thinking about saliva and stuff okay. like that. I don't know. This person writes, gross. Of course not to either. Animals' mouths are not clean, contrary to that fairy tale. Another person writes, I love my dogs. They can sleep in my bed, but kissing a dog, etc., is just nuts. They are an animal and do lick places you wouldn't be licking. Mm. No, I wouldn't share a meal or drink with our dogs. I love them, but I am a bit of a germaphobe. Oddly, I don't have a problem with them jumping up on the couch or on the bed, though. Lori, I don't have any pets, so I don't have a dog in this fight. If I did, I would not eat something a dog slobbered on. I love dogs, but I realize that dogs lick themselves in some areas that aren't what I would consider sanitary. Okay, so the same theme here. Yeah. I don't like that phrase, dog in the fight. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. I don't either. All right. This person writes, weird, if the cat drinks from my cup, I finish it. But if the dog drinks, I pour it out and fix a new one. So... So perhaps there's a certain amount of saliva, like you mentioned, above which they would not tolerate, right? Because the dog slob, right? Everyone gets the dog slobbers more than a cat slobbers, right? So Peter, do you think these people who don't mind allowing their dogs and or cats to drink from their beverage, can you assume these people would not mind taking a couple sips out of their dog's water bowl? Oh boy, that can get pretty nasty if you don't refresh the water often enough, you know? Uh, I gotta be pretty thirsty to get to go there. See, that's the saliva factor. Yeah. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.